0: Today's episode of Behind the Beverage is brought to you by BevSpot, empowering the global food and beverage industry with technology. By combining your restaurant's inventory and ordering data with beautifully designed, easy to use software, BevSpot can help you run a more efficient, more profitable business. Check them out today at bevspot.com and schedule a consultation with one of their specialists to see how BevSpot can help you. That's bevspot.com, B E V S P O T.com. Hey there everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Behind the Beverage, where every other week we present you with the interesting histories and backstories of just about everything in the world of spirits, wine, beer, and beyond. I'm your host, Trevor Bernacci, and this week we're hitting vineyards from the North Fork to Napa as we track the history of American wine, the multi-billion dollar industry that almost dried up before a single bottle could even be produced. I've got a fresh glass by my side, so that means it's time to go Behind THE Alright, alright, let's get down to it this week. I am super excited for this week's episode. Anybody who knows me knows I'm a huge wine guy. And I love the histories and backstories of wine regions, specific wines, right up my alley. So, let's dive in and let's get after it. So, wine in America actually begins with the medieval Norsemen's explorations. That's right, you heard me right. American wine got its beginnings with Vikings. At least symbolically, anyway. Now, we've all heard the story of Leif Erikson when we were learning about Vikings in grade school, and in 1001 AD, he sailed west from Greenland with his men to the unknown continent just offshore. Now, a lot of uncertainty actually exists about this voyage because it's mostly been told through stories translated over and over again from obscure languages. What most experts do agree on is that Leif actually probably reached the New World with his band of Vikings. And according to some, once they landed, Leif took his men exploring in one direction, and a German named Turker, who was also part of the expedition, went off in his own direction. And while hiking by himself, Turker discovered what he referred to as vinber, or wineberries. Now, vinber translated from the Old Norse to English is actually grapes. Now, Turker brought the grapes back in the cargo hold when they left, and in honor of the discovery, Leif Erikson named this new continent Vinland, or wineland. Now, this does make a great story, and most of it is based in truth, but the most likely place this band of explorers landed was in modern-day Newfoundland, Canada. Since wild grapes don't actually grow in such a high latitude, it's now commonly thought that what they actually found were wild cranberries and not grapes at all. While it may have been accidental that they named this new place Wineland, what they didn't know was that just to the south was a land perfectly suited to grow grapes from coast to coast. That being said, there are lots of different types of grapes in the world. The type of vines that produce wine is Vitis vinifera. Now, the vinifera grapes generally have really thin skins, soft flavors, and a much higher sugar content. Now, sadly, no such grapes are native to North America, so it would be really some time before the wine produced in the New World would even come close to the quality of those in the Old World. The grapes that were native to North America were more like the Concord grape, which we all associate with the jellies and jams of our childhood, and not necessarily the delicious wines of today. If we jump ahead to the 16th century, we actually see the first known wine that was made in America. In 1562, French Huguenots, which were an ostracized Protestant sect, settled in Jacksonville, Florida, and they used the native muscadine grapes of the area to try to make wine. Sadly, these wines were not a success. In fact, they were a flat-out failure. When they did actually complete a batch of wine, the wild native grapes of North America produced a wine that was way too funky for the settlers here at the time. Had a renegade case of funk, this wine. And they called it too foxy, quote-unquote, because it reminded them of farm animals. Sounds delicious. Now, shortly after that, in 1565, the first wines from overseas were brought into the New World the Spanish explorer Pedro Menendez de Aviles landed in Florida with barrels of sherry in tow. With a taste for the good stuff again, the locals in the New World kept trying to produce their own wines at home. This was just the beginning and a long period of trial and error for American winemaking. Thankfully, the people working at making this happen had a great deal of fortitude and desire to make it work. They had survived months and months at sea to get here and harsh winters without enough food due to not knowing how to harvest in the new world. They weren't going to give up that easily, especially when it came to making their alcohol. In fact, in the colonies of Virginia and in the Carolinas, making wine was something that was laid out in their original charters. The locals tried and tried to make a successful batch of wine from the native grapes until about 1619 when the Virginia Company imported some grapevines in from France. Unfortunately, all of their effort was for nothing. This new world they were living in had all sorts of native pests and diseases that attacked the foreign vines and devastated the new vineyards. But, much like a lot of the stories I tell here, though, times of great strife bring out the brilliance in people, and the winemakers started interbreeding the French vines with the native vines to create a disease-free hybrid grape. In doing this, they were able to create new disease-resistant varietals that maintained the flavor profile of the original European grapes. As the story goes, in 1683, William Penn was the first person to plant one of these hybrids, known as the Alexander Grape, in a Pennsylvania vineyard. It might be a pretty obscure grape by today's standards, but it actually went on to be pretty successful. In fact, one of the earliest commercial wineries in the U.S. was founded on Alexander production alone, and today French-American hybrid grapes are still produced at most East Coast vineyards. Speaking of the commercial wineries, just about 100 years after William Penn made the first attempt at growing these hybrid grapes, the first commercial vineyard and winery was opened with the help of the Kentucky legislation. On November 1st, 1799, Swiss viticulturist John James Dufour opened what was called the First Vineyard. I'm not even kidding, that's literally what they named the vineyard, didn't really have the widest uh, imagination back in the day, but just over three years later in 1803, the first wine from that first vineyard was consumed, and that vineyard remained opened and in production until 1809, when a late spring freeze killed most of the crop and, unfortunately, destroyed most of the vines. Jumping from there out to the west coast, the start of wine there had a far more spiritual beginning than it did back in the east. The first vineyard in California was set up by the Franciscan missionary Father Junipero Serra near modern-day San Diego back in 1769, and as the friars began moving further north along the coast to build more missions, they brought clones of their vines with them and continued to plant them at every single stop. Eventually, in 1805, the missionaries reached Sonoma, and so began some of the most famous growing areas in California. Of course, these days, if somebody says American wine, the first thing that comes to mind is California. Now, even though California is the most successful American wine region these days, that wasn't always the case. The first commercially successful winery in the U.S. was actually in Cincinnati, Ohio. Not just the home of Skyline Chili, I guess and winemaker Nicholas Longworth was making a sparkling wine there from Catawba grapes, which were a similar hybrid style to the Alexander grape we were mentioning before. This American sparkling wine got very favorable reviews, and it even shipped as far as Europe, possibly being one of the first American wines traded on the European market. Actually, it was such a hit that it worked its way into pop culture at the time, when Henry Wadsworth Longfellow dedicated a poem to Nicholas Longworth called An Ode to Catawba wine. Not only that, but newspapers started calling him the founder of wine culture in America. Longworth's success lasted until about 1860, when the wine business of the Ohio River Valley took a couple of big hits. The Catawba grapes were attacked by a powdery mildew, which they were highly susceptible to because of their very long growing season, and shortly after that, the Civil War broke out, and winemaking basically ground to a halt across most of the country. In the decades that followed the war, it seemed like one hit after another that just kept the American wine industry down. The phylloxera epidemic on the west coast, which was an outbreak of a parasite that feeds on the leaves and roots of grapevines, and then the outbreak of Pierce's disease in the east, which is a plant-based pathogen that essentially stunts the growth of grapes, both took their toll on the wine world in the U.S. at the same time. Finally, just when the vineyards were bouncing back and it looked like they were turning the corner, prohibition hit. Just like a lot of our episodes, Prohibition sticks its ugly head in the way and ruins almost everything. Now, even though a handful of wineries were able to stay open because they were able to get labeled as sacramental or even medicinal wine, yes, medicinal wine, think medical Merlot in this case, the American wine industry was virtually destroyed because of Prohibition. Once that terrible law was overturned in 1933, the world of U.S. wine was in pretty rough shape. Over the 13 years of Prohibition, a lot of the talented winemakers had died, or vineyards had been neglected or replanted with table grapes. Prohibition also changed America's wine palette as well. People were now looking for cheaper jug wines and fortified wines like port that had a higher alcohol volume. Before 1920, dry wine outsold sweet wine by a ratio of 3 to 1 in the States, but by 1935, 81% of California's wine production was sweet, sugary wine. Thankfully for all of us today, the winemakers taking over the industry at this point had the same drive and ingenuity in them as our founding fathers and mothers of American wine. They persevered decade after decade and took great strides in trying to turn things around, Actually, the University of California at Davis was pivotal in this time, and really ever since, because they had a huge hand in helping the science and research of how to grow sound wine in this country. They really guided the wine growers in their mission to create the types of amazing wines that they knew their soil was capable of producing. Finally, the time came for American wine to have its finest moment in the spotlight during the now-famous Judgment of Paris in 1976. A panel of French judges blind-tasted wines from several different categories, and the 1973 Chardonnay made by Mike Gergich at Chateau Montelena in Napa beat out all the French Chardonnays that were in the lineup and took the top spot at the competition for white wine. The first time an American wine had ever done this in such an event. In fact, not only did Chateau Montelena take top spot for the white, but another California winery took top spot for red that year as well. Now, this story was told on screen in the 2008 movie Bottle Shock, and I highly, highly recommend watching it. Fascinating movie. Now, that event in 1976 really helped catapult the American wine industry over the next 40-plus years into the multi-billion-dollar industry that it is today. It's really amazing how far we've come in this country in such a short period of time. Winemaking's been in other parts of the world for millennia, But merely in the last 300 years or so, we've been able to go from wine novices to making some of the top wines on the planet. And that is how we got to where we are today with American wine. Absolutely fascinating story going all the way back to the times of the Vikings. Really, really cool stuff there. Now before we wrap up this week, we're going to go into our segment called Pro Tips and Fun Facts. All right, pro tip number one for American wine. If you love wine from Burgundy, France, but you hate paying that huge price tag that comes on some of the more renowned labels, you should give Oregon wines a chance. Oregon's wine-growing regions and Burgundy, France actually both sit on the same latitude. This gives them very similar climates, and because of that, you can find some fantastic wine options in Oregon that have a more old-world sensibility at much more manageable price. Okay, pro tip number two for American wine. We might be getting a little bit closer to the end of summer, but that doesn't mean you've packed up your grills just yet. So if you're looking for a change from your standard grill fare of burgers and beer, take a chance on a California Zinfandel. Not to be confused with its pink brother, red Zinfandel from the Lodi region of California is one of the best things to pair with grilled or smoked meats. The region is super hot and grows really juicy grapes that create a full, round, fruit-forward wine that holds up amazingly well to the flavors coming off of a grill. Use charcoal if you can to take this pairing to the next level. Alright, fun fact number one for American wine. Looks like America's hero complex may have started out because of wine. In the 1870s, European vineyards were infected with phylloxera, and wine on the continent was almost wiped out entirely. Thankfully, German immigrant George Hussman and other winemakers were sending grape cuttings over to Europe from America. If you remember, these cuttings had been hybridized with the native North American vines in order to make them resistant to diseases like phylloxera and Pierce's disease. Unbelievable to think that America's little baby wine region was able to save the wine of the world just by sending over the little hybrids that they had made themselves to create their own wines here and a really great example of people of the world just coming together to solve a common problem. And fun fact number two, whenever anybody says American wine, the first thing you think of is California, but California's boom in wine didn't really start until after Prohibition and World War II wrapped up. The nation's top wine-growing regions before 1920? New York and Missouri. I know, it seems crazy, but if you remember at one point, Missouri was the most western state in the country. And on that note, we've reached the end of today's episode. As always, thank you so much for joining us. We're going to be coming at you with a brand new episode in just a couple of short weeks. In the meantime, don't forget to subscribe and rate us on iTunes and Spotify. It helps us out a great deal, and you can always get updated on our latest episodes. In the meantime, though, keep those glasses full, have a great week, and we'll see you next time for another episode of Behind the Beverage. Behind the Beverage is brought to you exclusively by BevSpot. Visit them today at BevSpot.com to find out how their software can help you run a more efficient, more profitable restaurant. BevSpot, empowering the global food and beverage industry with technology. The Behind the Beverage theme song is written and performed by Ila Moana. Check them out anywhere you stream music, Ila Moana at Spotify, Pandora, or iTunes.